And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Friday, November 12th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. The hot stove is on for now. We're about three weeks away before the lockout begins. I think it's pretty safe to say it's going to happen. The question is just really for how long, right? Is it going to be something that lingers deep into February or is it something that actually gets resolved reasonably quickly this winter with the hopes of having a full spring training since, you know, teams do make money at spring training. So I don't know, Keith. Oh, a lot. Yeah, it kind of seems like there's enough hanging in the balance where this might not take more than two months to be resolved once the lockout begins. Well, right. There's both sides lose a lot of money if they don't come to an agreement. Um, Every week that they don't have even spring training games, spring training for 25 out of the 30 clubs maybe is a profit center. So they're losing something. Owners are losing something. The issue I would say, if I were particularly thinking from the union side, but you can make this argument for the owner's side too, is that you're after something bigger. The gains you hope to make in a successful CBA negotiation are much bigger than the potential, say, salary losses from part of the 2022 season. You're talking about you might lose tens of millions of dollars in total player salaries, but you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that are at stake over the long term, especially if they were to end up with an agreement, say, that lowers the luxury tax thresholds or um, maybe doesn't adequately address the, you know, I hate to call it tanking, but tank light thing that's going on. There are lots of ways that the players especially could come out behind in this negotiation. I think the consensus is that the players did not do well last time around. And so that makes it just more incumbent on them to uh, think long-term here. Whereas the owners, it might be more that, hey, we just lose money every day. We're not playing. And the fact is the owners make lots of money as is. They could change nothing and still be very, very profitable. So I am uh, maybe not quite as optimistic as you are, but also there's a little part of me that's hoping that the players say, nah, we're, we're fighting this one. Hopefully for the better betterment of their long-term overall structure, they can get what they want done. But um, mm-hmm. hopefully both sides are at least invested enough in not letting this lag where they can actually reach that common ground sooner than they ordinarily would. Maybe I'm more optimistic because we're still in the pandemic. We had the shortened 2020 season. And I think even though I I will never, ever believe the owners at face value regarding (laughs) their losses, they made less money. That much is true. And I think that bothers people who like to make more money than, you know, Scrooge McDuck, because that's just the the attitude of of that, that group. But 
Lots to talk about on this episode because things are happening. It was qualifying offer week. Might be the last time we have qualifying offers. This could be among the things that ends up getting tossed out in the, the new CBA. Of course, by now, I think most people understand how these work. It's a one-year offer. Uh, this year, it's worth $18.4 million. More than a dozen players receive them. It's usually top-end free agents and a few sort of borderline guys that could actually accept that one-year offer. Brandon Belt kind of stands out to me as someone who received a qualifying offer who might accept it because free agency might not be as kind to Belt as $18 million will be to stay in San Francisco. But two of the most interesting players who received qualifying offers happened to be Mets. Michael Conforto and Noah Syndergaard, interesting for different reasons. The Mets, though, are in an absolute mess right now of their own creation as they try and find a GM. And it has reached the point, mm-hmm. Adam Cromie is the name that has surfaced more recently, right? He was an assistant GM with the Nationals up until 2017, and mm-hmm. he's been out of baseball entirely in the time since. How do you reach that level? How do you how do you just move away from all of the other people who've been working in baseball since then and end up at this point if you are leading a search for someone to be your GM? Well, it makes me think that they're just not serious. They're really not serious about hiring a GM or hiring a fully qualified GM. They want either one, they want a puppet. So that whoever, Sandy Alderson or maybe Steve Cohen, someone else is actually able to make the decisions. Or two, that there, there's been reports that they're waiting until after the 2022 season because they actually want to lure David Stearns away from the Brewers. Um, that they're just sort of saying, yeah, we'll just, we'll just kind of go through the motions this year. Maybe we'll hire someone, maybe we don't. But the guy we really want, we're going to do that a year from now. And what I find just extremely frustrating about this is that we have so many qualified people of color in this industry, and none of them seem to be able to get a sniff from the Mets. Are the Mets just absolutely determined not to hire one of those guys? They, I could name so many. I will actually name some. How about Billy Owens with the A's? How about Peter Woodfork and Michael Hill, who both currently work for Major League Baseball but have extensive uh, experience in front offices? How about Renee Francisco and Jin Wong, who currently work for the Kansas City Royals, who, you know, kind of won a World Series and another pennant and were part of you know, a club that did so actually on a much smaller payroll. Imagine what they could do with guys like that would potentially do with more resources. There are so many qualified people who are not the same generic, what, mid-30s white guys with the same kind of background and guys who are currently working in the industry. That's the thing I just can't get past. It's like, no, 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 we've, we've decided we don't want any of the guys in the industry here. We're going to take someone who's uh, – we're going to look outside the industry because we've decided everyone in the industry is not actually qualified. And to me, I mean, I got two pretty huge problems with that. One is um, just on a on a uh, you know, just straight qualification basis before even bringing race – into this at all, it's just there are more qualified people than Adam Cromie, who, by the way, I do not know at all. I have no idea. He could be brilliant. That's not the point. We're going off the resume here, and the re- his resume is inferior to those of many people who currently work in the industry, um, especially in terms of running departments or being in some kind of decision-making uh, position. And then second is, yeah, then I'm going to bring race into it. Absolutely. Because if Major League Baseball is in any way, shape, or form serious here about boosting diversity within front offices, 
uh, then having the Mets do this, I'm not saying the Mets can't hire somebody who is not a person of color, but having the Mets just completely overlook a dozen plus qualified candidates who are people of color to go outside the industry to hire a white guy. It just makes an absolute mockery of baseball's you know, equivalent of the Rooney rule. You can just pretty much hire whoever you want. It can be your friend's former lawyer who hasn't worked in the industry in four years. That's fine. We don't care. You don't even have to go through the the uh, appearance of interviewing candidates of color just for balance's sake. We, we don't even care. Just do whatever you want. Yeah, and of the names you mentioned, I don't think I've heard any of them linked to even interviewing for the job. Owens and Hill were approached a year ago. And I know from mutual friends that Michael Hill felt like it was a token interview. Mm-hmm. It was just done basically to, for that reason, right? To qual- to say that they did, you know, we know we met our requirements. We absolutely, you know, did what we needed to do um, for Major League Baseball. And I could understand him saying that's why he didn't want to come back and do this again. It's, you know, entirely uh, plausible. But to your broader point, yeah, I don't think any of those other people have been interviewed. How about Carlos Rodriguez with the Rays? One of the first guests I ever had actually on my own podcast, by the way. And the Rays, you know, that's just they've all they've done is, um, you know, won a pennant to continue to be among the most successful teams in the American League, despite the fact that they run a tiny payroll. And if the Mets certainly want to boost their um, player development, which I think externally a lot of people would say is is maybe one of the bigger problems that they've had is um, I think they draft well. I don't think their player development has been a strength. Well, Carlos Rodriguez has done a lot of work there, too. There's so many people they could be going after. They're not even calling these guys. They're not even interviewing these guys. And to me, that is not only is it a failure of their process, which makes me say, for whatever reason, they're not really serious about getting the right guy, but it's a huge failure on Major League Baseball's part that they are not holding the Mets uh, to account for their apparent unwillingness to identify and then bring in the highly qualified candidates who are people of color who currently work in Major League Baseball. And I'm trying to remember the last time a team got in trouble for failure to interview diverse candidates this way. And how long does it take? Does it take until after a hire is made for the league to come back around and, and kind of look through? I mean, are there formal records of who gets an interview that the league uses to determine whether or not a team has violated these rules? Clearly, that's what's happening here. But like, when when does that process usually start to play out where the league would get involved? I think that I mean, there have been rumors that, you know, such and such a team was fined some unknown, probably trivial amount of money for failing to do so. My, you know, I'm, don't hold your breath, right? We're not going to hear about this. I think nothing's going to happen with this. No one's going to hear my rant and no one's going to care. And the Mets are going to hire whoever the heck they want to hire because, especially because Steve Cohen was vetted by Major League Baseball. They're very exclusive about who they allow into the club. And they're going to say, um, Oh, no, the Mets, you know, the Mets didn't violate our rule. What rule? What rule are you talking about? That's the NFL. We don't have a Rooney rule. I mean, they, they, we don't. We don't. And it may be that they have to actually put in um, a hard and fast, which they're never going to do, obviously, but put in a hard and fast rule that says, no, you have to interview, you know, uh, 25% of the candidates you interview for any open position have to include qualified candidates of color. And then somebody has to, they, you know, if MLB is committed to diversity, then somebody has to actually look and say, yeah, you you did you or did you not interview actually qualified candidates of color with these just token interviews too? Because so many of these positions are basically just filled as as um, you know it's crony capitalism, not crony capitalism, and they just you know what we're just gonna hire our friends. We're gonna hire 
who we want. Like hires like. That's generally how it works in a lot of industries. But Major League Baseball's hiring process is opaque enough that people can get away with um, – with not doing that, with not hire, with not doing, sorry, with not um, doing the right thing to actually broaden their list of candidates and maybe, you know, maybe hire somebody you didn't know before, but who's got the right recommendation and the right resume to, uh, to qualify, to justify um, you hiring. Perhaps, maybe I'll play the role of optimist again. Perhaps this debacle will lead to more rules, further change. Again, I'm probably being overly optimistic, but hey, I'm, I'm trying, Keith. I'm trying to stay positive and, and keep things moving in uh, the right direction. But what a difference a year makes. Just the, the way people were talking about and writing about the Mets this time last year, throughout last offseason versus now is so different. I will not stand for any clown who says nobody wants this job. That's a joke. There are only 30 GM jobs. You're talking about people who have spent their entire lives, in many cases, their entire working lives, and sometimes going back to childhood, who just wanted to get a job like this. And they're not going to go take a job in New York, where you will get probably three years at minimum guaranteed at a extremely high salary that puts you probably in the top one-tenth of one percent of Americans for income. Actually, it's probably even more than that, isn't it? GMs make a lot of money. GMs make really good somebody, money. And by the way, if you go be the GM of the Mets and you suck, you are just horrible for three years, you are going to fall out of there into a cushy media deal or a book deal. Like, I am not worried about you if you fail with that job. That sets you up basically forever. This idea that people don't want that job because they don't want to work for Cohen or because the market is too tough, or, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And it, it is like listening to someone in the former, former administration just stand up at that podium in the press room and just lie to us repeatedly. And you sit there and think, is anyone in the room going to call them out on such a blatant falsehood? Yeah. If the Mets want to say nobody wants to be our GM, shut up. That's a lie. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of people out there that want to be a GM anywhere, anywhere the opportunity exists. You just got to talk to the right people. The Mets clearly are not doing that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As far as the decisions that the new GM will maybe hopefully get a chance to make, clearly Sandy Alderson's still going to have a, a hand in what's going on for the next year, at least. Michael Conforto and Noah Syndergaard, as I mentioned, received qualifying offers. Conforto, I like him a lot. I, I think he's a great bounce-back candidate. I think he makes sense for plenty of teams because there's a bunch of teams out there that need corner outfield help. You can put him in a corner. He could bounce back, maybe be a three, three-war player at a pretty reasonable market rate. I mean, if he had had a typical Michael Conforto year, 
in 2021, as you wrote in the free agent piece, I think he'd be looking at more like a four or five year deal. So you're getting a really good bat at a significant discount without having to make a long-term commitment if he doesn't take that qualifying offer to stay with the Mets. I identified him, I mean, I don't think this is any great flash of insight here, as one of the best candidates for the one-year pillow contract. I think that's a Scott Borisism anyway. He is also a Boris client. And yeah, I agree. He is the perfect guy to go into this. He's coming off a bad platform year where the underlying indicators say he's probably going to be better. There's just a lot of randomness, little fluky stuff that it'll be better. He's going to be better next year. And I think that he will also benefit from going out into what I believe is a weaker free agent market a year from now. It'll be a weaker market in terms of talent, but it may be a stronger market because we're not staring at a CBA negotiation either. So there are lots of little reasons I could see Conforto, who I think is a way better player than what he just showed last year, would be better off taking a one-year deal somewhere, in this case taking a QO, and going back and having a Conforto year. And that, I think he's one of the best candidates. I think if they hadn't offered one, he would have been flooded with one-year offers for teams saying, come get right with us. We are more than happy to be the pillow contract. Yeah, and I think the only drawback I could think of of him staying with the Mets and choosing to take the qualifying offer it's it's a neutral park I mean it's not a not a bad place to hit but it's not a good place to hit so if if you wanted to choose your own adventure and go somewhere else where you might pop better numbers like sure Philly might be a better fit from a, a park factor standpoint but at the same time staying where you're familiar that has some value as well I will say, as somebody who's been a Conforto guy kind of since they drafted him too, he's a hit. He's a hitter first, right? There is power there. Obviously, I think he's at some point hit for more power than I forecasted. But Conforto, more than anything, is a hitter, and hitters hit, right? If you just give them enough time, he will show you that he's a good hitter. And I think in any ballpark, look, if he went to San Diego for a year, San Diego is not a good, um, not at all a good uh, hitter's park. Certainly not for power. But could he go there? And have a good enough year to make more money next winter? Yeah, because I think you'd go there and hit for average with a bunch of doubles and people would say, oh, yeah, that's that's our guy. Yeah, so you see a little less of a pull-happy sort of approach from Conforto. Not that it got out of control in 2021 by any stretch, but you, you do see more of a balanced hitter in that profile. Cindergaard mm-hmm. uh, is interesting, too, though, because when Noah Cindergaard is healthy, he's an impact starter. And I know that's a, a big qualifying or a big conditional statement when he's healthy. To me, it's a no-brainer to offer him the qualifying offer. I can't believe anyone's questioning that. I think he could still get a multi-year deal even after being hurt. Like I think there's a chance there's teams out there that would actually take the risk and say, you know what, this is a rare opportunity to get you know, a, a possible frontline guy mm-hmm. for multiple years without making a, a $200 million commitment. I don't know if his corner necessarily wants that. They might be angling more for something short to get the big payoff later, but... Uh, where do you fall on on Cindergard, and what do you think his best decision would be? Is it to stay with the Mets, where they've had issues keeping him and other players healthy? Is it taking a short term deal somewhere else, or is it trying to get the the longer term deal now, even though it wouldn't be the mega deal that he would have got if he'd stayed healthy the entire time? Yeah, so I I'm going to give you my opinion, and going to give you the contrary opinion of somebody I respect. I thought offering was a pretty much a no brainer, um, particularly because. You know, one is that Syndergaard came back at the end of the year. They got to see 
that he was healthy. He was barely throwing, obviously, and it was just, I think it was just fastballs and changeups at the end of the year, and he wasn't even throwing at 100%. But they know exactly where he is health wise. And the fact that they offered him the QO makes me think, okay, they know he's fine. They know that this is okay. They're obviously comfortable with what they saw and what they know from his rehab process. And like you said, he's a frontline starter when he's fully healthy. He's probably not going to be that guy again for another year. It's not like he's going to go out and throw 180 innings in 2022. But he could throw 110 innings that are really good. That wouldn't shock me at all. You space him out. You start him late or you space out the starts a little bit. There's lots of ways you can handle this. I, I thought it made sense, especially – plus, you know, I've said forever, there's really no such thing as a bad one-year deal. Your investment is so limited at that point. It doesn't impact your future payrolls. Yeah, okay, $18 million is a lot for a lot of clubs. This is also the Mets, right? It, they have they have the cash to be able to do this. Joe Sheehan, who I've had on my podcast a couple of times, you know Joe. His newsletter is outstanding. I strongly recommend it. Specifically, I have his in front of me. He wrote about this three days ago. This is the one offer I really didn't like. Syndergaard hasn't pitched in two years, hasn't pitched like a star in three. When he did take the mound this year, it was with instructions not to throw breaking balls. This idea that you know, guys two past two years past Tommy John surgery are safe bets, but he points out that you usually the interim year, the guys pitched and Thor did not. So he said no. He said – Joe said he would not have given him the QO. He expects Syndergaard to take it. I do too. Um, I could see he and Conforto taking it. You mentioned Belt earlier. Those are guys who could either take the offer or maybe take two and 35. Right? If it's a situation, that would especially make sense for Syndergaard, right? Because if you're Syndergaard's camp too, you're saying, hey, 2023 is the year we really want to go out to free agency with because we're likely to have a full season at that point. Um, but in all those cases, I think um, I think they're pro- all three of those guys, I think, are more likely to accept than not. Yeah, a, a two-year deal seems like the, the longer end of the window. And I think it would put Syndergaard back into free agency as a 31-year-old, which isn't ancient by any stretch we've got plenty of good 31 year olds on the market right now you look at what his former teammate zach wheeler just got in free agency going into 2020 five for mm-hmm. 118 maybe that kind of gives Which looks you, like a bargain so far yeah but maybe that gives you a, a baseline of what you're hoping for right you come back and have a three or four war sort of season even if it's only 150 innings this year that might be the sort of payoff you're looking at in the future if you're Syndergaard. but mm-hmm. the the mets medical staff and in the the lack of success they've had keeping players healthy would be that one thing. If you're Syndergaard, you'd say, yeah, it's a fair point. I'm not going to do a lot better if I go somewhere else, but maybe I just want to be in a different place with new coaches and a new medical staff that's going to get me through this pillow deal completely healthy. So I do sure. hit that $120 million payday. By the way, I'll just keep bringing them up because also I expect them to be really aggressive in general this offseason. How about him in San Diego for a year? It'd be okay. Yeah, be great. Right? They would love him, right? God, they were supposedly talking about trading for him before he got hurt in the first place. So obviously they're interested on some level. Now, would they give up a draft pick for him? I don't know. Um, maybe. I, I think they'd be open. I don't think the the attachment of a draft pick is going to dissuade the Padres from signing a guy they really want. Maybe that's not ideal in Syndergaard's case. But also, man, I would love to see what Syndergaard does in, like, say he makes 45 starts in the next two years at Petco. Yeah, sign me up. Yeah, I could see them being among the teams that would want to go with a second year. They've done that with a few other guys sure. who were in the rehab process for Tommy John. Yeah, didn't they do it with Garrett Richards? I think they were, yeah, that up? they were the Garrett Richards okay. team. Yep. Yeah. The other uh, qualifying offer news that I found interesting was that John Gray did not receive a qualifying offer from Colorado after staying there after the trade deadline. They kept him. Very odd choices, but it's the Rockies, so I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised by that. 
the big question is this. You take him out of Colorado. He doesn't have to make those adjustments. We talked about it for hitters last week when we were talking about Trevor Story, but for pitchers too. Pitches don't move the same way in Coors as they do everywhere else. I think that can wreak some havoc on a pitcher's command. How good is John Gray going to be if he leaves the Rockies and just gets to pitch anywhere else for half of his starts? Where's the ceiling now compared to where it was when he entered the league? So I want your opinion on this too. Um, because I don't have a because I don't have the answer, and because B, I just want your opinion on this. Um, I don't think it's an automatic that he's going to leave and be better, right? I think there there is a school of thought that is good pitcher, talented pitcher leaves Rockies gets better. It's not always like that, and the things that some of the things that bedeviled Gray while he was with Colorado were probably Coors Field related, altitude related, but you know baseball, all of that, right? And some of them probably weren't. I think some of them were, you know, Gray didn't really develop. Now, whether that's on him or it's on player development, whichever, that's, you know, either or. But I don't think it is just automatic that he's going to leave and be, you know, a top of the rotation guy for someone else next year. I think there's work to do. I think the raw ingredients are there for him to potentially be very good for someone else. I am floored that the Rockies chose not to make him a QO. I do not understand that at all. But I also don't think that it's going to be like he's just going to go somewhere else. And they're going to, you know, he's going to, you know, he's probably going to sign what three year deal somewhere. Three seems be, right. Yeah, right. He's not the elite, but he could be. Right. He could be the guy that we look back in three years and say that was the gem of the class or close to it. Right. That I should have had him in the tier in my rankings. I had Stroman. Gossman, Ray, one, two, three, I think, among pitchers in my rankings. We could look back in, in three years, two years, and say, yeah, Jonathan Gray should have been up there with those other guys. It's possible. It's entirely possible. I just do not think that it is the automatic, hey, he's going to leave and get better. Any more than it is true that a hitter is going to leave and get worse, right? Because we've, we've definitely seen that that's not the case. And in Gray's particular case, though, there are lots of things. It's well documented. Lots of people have written about this that – Hey, what there are specific things that aren't working for him anyway that need to be addressed for him to be successful in any environment. Right. I think it comes back to needing to be in the right organization. It's not just leaving Coors that's going to fix it. If he leaves Coors and goes to a place that hasn't done a great job developing pitching, I'd still have some concerns. It's a really, it's a really fastball slider heavy approach mm-hmm. that doesn't age particularly well in a starter. Right, you'd like to see more changeups or more curveballs or more of both. If you could get to even just a third consistent pitch, that would make me feel a lot better about him, regardless of where he ends up. I think seeing him as more of an innings eater with growth potential is the right way to look at him. And if he did end up kind of finishing his contract, a multi-year deal in a similar range to the three pitchers you were talking about, that wouldn't be unheard of. I mean, maybe this is sort of like the Lance Lynn signing a few years ago with Texas, right? I don't think anyone was really mm-hmm. that excited when Lance Lynn went to the Rangers. I don't think anyone said, great signing. He's going to be a top 25 starting pitcher based on war. Uh, the, and the Rangers have been one of those teams. They've they've shopped in that second tier and had a lot of success. So mm-hmm. I'm really curious to see where he goes. It's sort of like the Andrew Heaney thing, but on a multi-year deal, right? I think we talked about yep. Heaney on this show, if not last week, a couple of weeks ago. As someone who just made sense from a, a strikeout minus walk perspective, obvious home run issues. You put him in the right place with the right coaching staff. There were reasons to buy low on him. I think there are similar reasons to buy low on John Gray, 
but when you buy low, sometimes you just get innings. You get good innings or a decent amount of innings for a fair price, and that's so that's an mm-hmm. okay outcome. You need that. You need guys to chew up 160, 170 innings. And I think Gray could at least do that effectively almost anywhere he goes. Yes, I agree. I think we're pretty much on the same page on what he potentially offers. And just there's more upside, but it's a development thing that, and you know, I think that's harder to say for a guy at his age. Are they going to, is he going to develop, um, continue to develop? At, well, again, at his age, I'm repeating myself at a point where a lot of guys just don't get better, right? That's to me, that is, it's very easy to see him just never getting better. That's what I'm trying to sort of, you know, saying incoherently here is that he's at a point now, you don't, you can't look at anybody in this free agent class and say he's going to get better. You say he could. We talked about Javi Baez, I think, as that. But that I think the Gray has the potential to get better. I pointed out the fact that, say, his four-seamer has typically played better on the road than it has at Coors Field. That's a thing. I think that that's, um, that he will be better if he's only, you know, maybe he's pitching twice a year at Coors Field as opposed to doing it half of his starts. You're right about the slider is absolutely an out pitch. You're right that there probably isn't really a good enough third pitch there. Not yet. Maybe he goes somewhere else and he's able to develop one, but I certainly wouldn't bank on it. All right. Maybe the curveball would be less loopy outside of Colorado and it would become more effective. Like that's at least mm-hmm. a thing that could happen. I'm surprised the results on the road for his career have not been better for his career. Yeah. And he, I mean, John Gray in 2015 and 2016, different pitcher than he is in the last couple of seasons. But you're talking about a guy that has a 24.3% strikeout rate, which is good. An 8.8% mm-hmm. walk rate, fine. A 139 whip and a 465 ERA on the road in his career. Those are brutal numbers. I mean, right. If that's what he is, and it's not that simple, right? It's just never that simple. Just say a guy is his road stats. But if that's what he is, it's not great, Bob. No. No, it's definitely, uh, definitely a problem. I guess the one thing you could look at is a silver lining. If you get him for three years and it ends up being like $12 million a year or something in that range or $15 million a year even, John Gray with those two pitches, put him in short relief and maybe you have an elite reliever. So I think you at least have that as a fallback, like a fallback contingency plan if it's not working out with him as a starter over the life mm-hmm. of a contract. You may end up having a a top 10 reliever or top 15 reliever that teams are excited about at the end of the deal if you can't fix him as a starter. Sure. I, yep, I buy that. I absolutely buy that. I think the durability probably works in his favor. Right? He's been reasonably durable as a starter. So I could, I could, uh, I would probably say that's your, it's your backup option. It's your plan C, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, you want to talk about Heaney for a minute? Yeah, I was going to say this is, a, this is a great time to get there. One year, $8.5 million. I mean, like that's just it's so little money for a major league yep. team to throw that out there. And I imagine the Dodgers were not the only team interested. There's a reason why he signed quickly, why they pursued yep. him quickly and why he went there quickly, because I think there's a belief that he can come around and hit the market next year and get a better deal because he'll he'll take some steps forward there. Right. Well, if he's not giving up a home run every two innings or so, mm-hmm. then I would say that probably will work in his favor. He'll be a better candidate as a free agent. Um, and look, he's not going to. He's not going to be this bad again, right? For lots of reasons, for fluke reasons, for getting out of Yankee Stadium, for the way he's used, because the Dodgers sprinkle fairy dust on their pitchers and suddenly they all get better, right? This is, yeah, the, I, if there's something clear that ails him, I actually wonder if the Dodgers saw him and were like, we know it. We, we got this. We know what to do with this one. And they already have a plan, right? They're good at that. 
It's like if the Rays had signed him. I'm sure the Rays called. I don't know that for a fact. I haven't talked to Heaney's agent or anything, but I'm going to guess they called. It's the kind of guy they would probably have been after. And same thing. We'd be like, yep, we can fix that one. Yeah. They're probably more like, we can do it at $5 million. <laughs> And I was like, well, we have other suitors, so that's not going to happen. Also, who wants? To, who doesn't want to pitch in LA, right? You might, you're probably going to the playoffs. you got a chance to go to the World Series. Well, I guess that's true for the Rays, too. But you're also going to pitch in front of more people in LA in a slightly better pitcher's park. Lots of other reasons beyond just money, I would say, maybe to choose the Dodgers. If you're a guy in this situation, then, then the Rays, who are otherwise a pretty attractive option. Lots of guys have gone to Tampa Bay to restore their careers recently. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. One other uh, transaction I wanted to ask you about was the White Sox decision to exercise the $16 million option on Craig Kimbrell, which just given the makeup of that roster, the bullpen was a strength for them even before they acquired Kimbrell at the trade deadline. On the one hand, I'm glad that teams are not declining player options for good players at what seem like pretty fair market rates. On the other hand, I'm a little surprised they did it because it seems like they did it with the intention of trading him. And it seems like everybody knows that was their plan, which means they don't really have a lot of leverage and like, what kind of return do you think they're going to get if they find someone to trade Craig Kimbrell to? Like a one-year, $16 million deal. It fits back into what you said. I, I'm with you. I don't think there's such a thing as really a bad one-year deal. I yeah. just wonder if you're the White Sox and you have other clear needs right now, if you have a hard time moving Kimbrell, if that kind of slows you down in any way as you try to fix other parts of your roster. Yeah, so no way i pick up that option if I'm the White Sox. Absolutely not. 
I don't, it's way too much money for the pitcher that Kimbrel is, right? It's not even that a reliever shouldn't make that much money. Well, it's probably, it's on the high end, certainly, but the best relievers are probably worth that. It's just they, you know, sort of on a year to year basis. But Kimbrel wasn't, and he hasn't been worth that in the last three years. He had three and a half or so months this year for the Cubs, where he kind of looked like old Kimbrel, and then he got traded to the White Sox. He turned right back into the Kimbrel he had been in 2020 and in 2019 which is not a $16 million a year guy. And the fact that the White Sox, I don't know. I'm, this is, again, me speculating. It's not the type of question I even like asking front office guys because it's uh, it's uncomfortable for everybody. But did they pick up the option because they traded away Nick Madrigal, who I'm not a huge fan of. He was the fourth pick in the draft, and he was they viewed him as one of their top prospects. He's probably going to play a fair amount for the Cubs. Um, did they pick up the option because they did not like the optics of having traded a reasonably high-profile young player in Madrigal and then only gotten two months out of Kimbrell, and those two months were terrible. Whereas at least now, if they turn around and trade Kimbrell for something, they could say, no, 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 we got the other thing, right? Yes, I know you're upset we traded Madrigal, but we got we got this other guy instead, so we're not left empty-handed. I hope that's not the case. I mean, it's just the, the deal didn't work out. It's lousy, but you just got to move on. Right. I mean, if you compare him to... Rysel Iglesias, who received the qualifying offer from the Angels, I, I trust Iglesias a lot more on a one-year Absolutely. big deal, or even on a multi-year. And he deal. has his he has his flaws, but I agree with you. I would give him look. I would never give a reliever three-year deals, which means I would probably never sign a free agent reliever, at least not a premium one. But of all the guys in this market, he's the one I would trust the most. I would definitely give him two years. You know, he's the one who should get the three-year deal because that's what the market typically gives these guys. So last week, we talked a lot about players at the top end of your free agent rankings piece. People should check that out on The Athletic, theathletic.com slash baseball show. We'll get you a subscription for a year at 33% off the regular price. So be sure to get that if you don't have it already. I want to talk about a few bargain bats that you wrote up. Uh, Anthony Rizzo is kind of an interesting player to me. I mean, because projecting decline is not fun. Like It, it is not fun to sit here and look at a player and say... He's just not going to be as good as he used to be. He's going to get worse. This is this is not a player who's heading in the right direction. Like those, yeah, nobody enjoys that. That's that's not a fun I, I process. Hope not. No, it's not fun to read about it. It's not fun to talk about a player declining. But Anthony Rizzo is in some form of decline. I think it's more power decline than anything else. The plate skills still look good, right? He doesn't strike out a lot. He draws plenty of walks. The weird step back was his defense was actually very bad in 2021. That was something I didn't expect to see. Are we talking about a guy who's kind of like a, a left-handed Yuli Gurriel for the next few years where he's going to take short-term deals and and maybe exceed expectations when he stays healthy but fall short of expectations when he's when he's dealing with ongoing issues? His back has been a problem at various points in his career. Like, I'm just kind of curious if you actually see Rizzo as a, a good value for a team that doesn't have first base figured out or if you actually see him as a guy that could continue to trend the wrong way. Uh, I'm leaning towards the latter i think there's this is a decline phase it just is um you know regardless of what you think of him as a person obviously he was beloved in chicago um and look i've made some comments about his you know, completely unfounded views on vaccinations um, which i wish he'd at least kept to himself um the fact is his performance this year and the underlying data that we have available to all kind of point the wrong way now 
decline is not always a straight line thing. So it's possible that that's you know he was worse last year and he'll be a little better next year and he'll be worse again after that. But the trend overall over the next couple of years is likely to continue to be uh, the, the slope is negative, as we would say in the math world. Um, can you tell I have a high school student in the in the house? <laughs> so would I sign him? Sure, absolutely. He's got value, but you have to be realistic about what he is. And maybe somebody signs him because they say we like Rizzo the person and what he'll do in the clubhouse and in the community, and we're willing to pay extra for that. That's fine. Absolutely fine. Maybe you're a team with a lot of young players. You don't really have a veteran over at first, and you decide you want to have someone like him in the clubhouse uh, to make your, you know, make you a little more respectable on the field, but also so that, hey, this is a guy who was very respected as a person um, within that Cubs organization. Sure. Absolutely. I don't has you know, players should get paid, and I'm fine with that. I, I I would hesitate if someone tried to offer him, say, a three-year deal because you're just buying decline. Even if there's a little bit of a bounce back somewhere in there, on the whole, you're getting less than you think. Yeah, I mean, a two-year deal probably is where things fall in. It probably ends up on a contending team, or at least has a shot at ending up on a contending team for the reasons you mentioned. I think the clubhouse presence and teams are increasingly, it seems like, just locked in on getting players that do not strike out, right? There's a lot of swing and miss and plenty of contending lineups. This is one way to reduce that swing and miss, to put more balls in play. I get it. I understand the appeal. Uh, But yeah, just one of those guys that I I would have thought maybe two or three years ago would have been destined for a bigger payday when the contract ended. But that, that, that decline phase seems like it has begun. Another guy that I think has had that same sort of uh, uh, tagline as far as the, the value he brings in the clubhouse is Eduardo Escobar. And I think he's just kind of an underrated player because he's done it mostly in Minnesota and Arizona. And at the end of this year, he was a brewer. But this is one of those guys that you look at back what he's done since about 2018. He's been pretty consistently an above average hitter with the 2020 outlier. Keith, as I look at multi-year track records, 2020 means almost nothing to me zelch it, just start it, out it just doesn't it doesn't compute i mean the sample for one but the conditions of that sample the way the way players and everyone were just trying to get through day-to-day life and figure things out i mean the 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 varying levels of of concerns about the pandemic and all, all the factors that we'll we'll never know how these how that impacted individual players too if you throw out that pandemic year the first pandemic year Mm-hmm. You get a guy that over the last three years, consistently above average, can play multiple spots, has more power than expected, and the plate skills have held up surprisingly well. I guess you could look at him as a as an alternative to Rizzo, maybe a more versatile guy because you can play him at third, you could play him at second, you could put him in the outfield if you want to. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious, what, what do you think about Escobar as perhaps one of the better values among hitters on the market this winter? Yeah, I could see that. I could see him... You'd be essentially, as you said, I, li- I like the way you said it, right? As a good value guy. He's not one of the elite free agents necessarily. Um, you know, it was interesting that he, you know, was was lousy in Arizona, goes to Milwaukee, and suddenly his walk rate goes through the roof, which always curious if that happens. We saw that with Jorge Soler, too. Is that new? Is that a thing? Is that going to carry forward? Will some of it carry forward? It's a tiny sample, too. Of course, it's the same sample size as the 2020 pandemic season, so keep that in mind. Um, but also in the Diamondbacks, his, you know, his BABIP was really low the whole time he was there. And he goes back to Milwaukee and he's right back to normal too. And I do think that that comes better, um, especially because the batted ball data while he was in Arizona really justified a better BABIP than he was showing too. So I think that his versatility, he's not had a huge platoon split. 
when I wrote him up, I'm like, he's probably not really good enough to be an everyday player. And he is 33 in this upcoming season. So you don't want to make the long-term investment, but teams really value the versatility too. guys who can move around, play a lot of positions, guys who guys like that. I often, I assume at least they're more comfortable shifting too. Would you love to have that guy and say, we're not going to just hand you a job, but you're going to get 500 at bats with us this year. Yeah, that's probably exactly what he what he is, how he's best utilized, and also lets you ease him in to a reduced role if he does show signs of age-related decline, which is just probably going to happen at some point in the next two, three years. Yeah, a good glue guy. Like if you are a contending team and someone like Chris Taylor's maybe just he's on your radar, but you don't get him, someone else pays more than you're willing to pay. Escobar could be a fallback option. I know Taylor can play up the middle a bit more effectively than Escobar can, so that does clearly separate the two players in that regard. But um, I, I kind of see the as Drupal Cabrera here, like another another guy that can handle multiple spots, ended up playing on a bunch of decent teams at the end of his career because of that versatility and, and that just good, balanced skill set that he brings to the table. One last uh, question for you here before we go, Keith. Uh, on the and the hitting side, the last uh, player I want to talk about, we didn't talk about him last week as part of the the bigger group of players, Nick Castellanos. Like, how different is he than Michael Conforto, who we talked about earlier? If you're looking at those two guys and your expectations for them for the next two to three seasons, is Castellanos that much better than Conforto? And there's a drive to deep left. Sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> Um, you know, there's a, there's a, I, I, you know, it's funny, I, having written a book on this, I should probably have a name for this, but I feel like there's, there's a little bit of a psychological bias in play here that I am falling prey to, um, which is that Castellanos is coming off of, I think his best year and Conforto is coming off of one of his worst. And so I think that makes me undervalue Castellanos and overvalue Conforto. It's that I, you know, that I'm believe you know buying into the potential upside that it's you know it feels better to say no he's going to be better next year as opposed to buying castellanos and worrying you're going to have some maybe buyer's remorse and you're going to know right away he's probably not going to be as good as he was last year and feeling like maybe you're paying top of the market prices for him there's nothing against castellanos it's not like he did anything wrong that's exactly what you want is to go out into the market uh off your best season you want that to be your platform year when you're a free agent so you know i wondered as I was going through even the writing, am I overrating Conforto? Also, Conforto is a guy I've kind of always liked, and he had some great seasons, and that really seemed to justify my optimism for him when he was still a prospect. The one thing I will say that I come back to with those two guys, especially, is that Conforto is a way better outfielder. Castellanos is just not good at any position. Um, his best position is batter's box. I like guys who are better defensively, not just for the value they are likely to provide because they play their position better or because they can play tougher positions, but I think they age better. Athletes tend to age better. Guys who can play in the middle of the field, who play the skill positions, right? So I think of the five skill... We typically talk about middle of the diamond versus corners. To me, third base is more like a skill position. So it's the five skill positions versus the three corners. The guys on the corners, especially ones who are not great defenders, they don't age as well. Bill James wrote that, I think, 20 years ago. This is not new. It's certainly not something I made up. But I I think that that's true, and I tend to still evaluate free agents that way in where, hey, Castellanos may still be a good hitter for a long time. It's the kind of guy who's just, like, he was he came out of the womb hitting, and he'll probably hit right until the day he retires. If he When he retires, it's probably going to be because of other things, like he just 
you know, he's DH only at some point and maybe he doesn't have the power to do that, but he'll still hit. I just feel better about Conforto over a longer time period because, hey, he's not really a center fielder, but he's played it quite a bit in his career and he's been passable out there and he'll continue to provide value in an outfield corner for a longer period, whereas Castellanos now would even be best suited, I think, moving to first base. So, But I fully acknowledge, too, that there is a bias at work here where the fact that I'm looking at Conforto and saying he'll be better and Castellanos saying he can't be better. He's already been his best. That may be skewing my judgment. Yeah, I think for me, that that could definitely be part of the thinking. But I, I think with Conforto, the walk rates being consistently a lot better, that's the added part of the profile yeah. that gives me more confidence in him long term. who he's always been, going all the way back to college. Yeah, and it's not like you're you're sacrificing a lot with K-rates. I mean, I know it was a really full-season career best K-rate from Conforto in the down year at 21.7%. Castellanos usually at or even a tick better than that sort of level, but they're very similar in a lot of ways. And the defense is a huge point for me. Like I'd much rather have the guy that can actually do even just play left field. Fine. Just play left field for me because if you're building a roster, let's say we get universal DH and sure, that's good for a guy like Castellanos gets him more years. It gets him more money. We're both for that. I think pretty clearly, but the every player I have dispensed with much of the language, like he's overpaid. That's a terrible contract. You know what? Good for you. Get that money. Yeah. Get paid while you can. Do you think it's better from a tactical standpoint to have a floating DH spot? At what threshold do you have to reach with the quality of your DH mm-hmm. to where you say, it's fine, we're going to have this guy in the spot? I mean, David Ortiz and Nelson Cruz and some of those guys, they're they're kind of yeah. obvious, like, okay, you're getting enough of a lift. You don't need the benefit of, of having that DH spot to maybe rest some of your regulars while keeping their bat in the lineup. But it's at a certain point, floating the DH spot seems like it, is actually kind of a valuable thing to do. I love the question. I don't have a great statistical answer for it. My gut says there are probably only about four or five guys right now who meet that standard. Um, Shohei Otani, obviously a different animal entirely, but if you just look at him as a DH, right, he's good enough as a DH just because, you know, because the crazy power, despite the absurd strikeout rate he does enough when he makes contact that he could be every but an everyday dh nelson cruz is probably just at the edge of the precipice now or maybe he's not maybe he's got one more year as that um, as that type of guy but i think that um i would still put him probably in the yes column and then it's you know maybe jd martinez if jordan alvarez has to become a dh which i think he really should be maybe he's that guy it's a pretty short list though I'm not sure who else there would be who would qualify to be missing somebody. There aren't that many guys who do it now, actually. If you look at like qualified um, people who designated hitters who had enough at bats to qualify for the batting title, there just aren't that many anymore. Yeah, and I think the names you're throwing out there are guys that are usually at least 30% better than a league average hitter. I mean, Nelson yeah. Cruz has WRC pluses in the 140, 150, 160 range, littering his player yeah. page. I mean, he's way up there. Right. You do that, you can be my everyday DH. Right. So I, I, I guess what got me thinking about it was Castellanos. I mean, if he's projected for something in the neighborhood of like a 115, 120 WRC plus by most projection systems right now, and you regress that over time and maybe you get him down to like 105 by the end of a three or four year contract, like, is that good enough? based on the alternatives and, and does that stack up compared to other players we've been really comfortable with as pure DHs. But there's the other side of this is 
hey, if he's not out there playing defense anymore, he might be digging in and finding more ways to get better as a hitter. Like there, there could be time spent in the cage under underneath, right? There could be time spent looking at the tablet, just doing more prep to hit. Like that's a possible outcome too. Maybe not the most likely outcome, but at least a possible outcome that should be considered. Yep. All completely reasonable. I The one thing I'll say, I, and I do think there's such a thing as if you just tell a guy who's like a bad defensive player, just go hit. And, and he's underachieved a little bit as a hitter. Maybe he just gets better because he's just not worried because he's not wearing tear. Like there's a real physical thing. Maybe he's not worried about his defense anymore. I think that could occasionally be a thing. Um, I think it's a ridiculous thought, at least. Um, but I also do like the idea, at least, of having the DH spot open to cycle other guys through. It really depends on who else is on your roster, right? Do you have some mediocre... Um, mediocre fielders out there do you have guys who are maybe a little more injury prone and could use the time off i think in those cases you have to just be very mindful of who else is on the roster um and that's where you make that decision do you go after a what do you call it do you have to go go after a nelson cruiser well jd martinez op- did not opt out right but he was a free agent would you go after a guy like that yeah maybe it just depends on who else you who else you've got on the roster yeah, and I guess you kind of said this in passing, but Castellanos, he could play first base, right? He broke in as a third I think baseman. So. He was a third baseman. He was actually a shortstop in high school because everybody was. Um, but yeah, I think that you got so whoever signs him, if they don't just put him in right and say, we'll live with it, absolutely should um, sign him and should move him to first base and see what it looks like. Yeah. And give him time, too. He may stink right away. That's fine. Give him some time to adjust to the position, too. He's really – has he ever played it? Probably a little bit, but not much. I don't remember it, actually. I don't remember ever picking up eligibility in fantasy at first base, so it would have been like less than five games in any given season if he's ever done it because mm-hmm. people would have geeked out about that for, for good reason. Versatility is, is value. I'm going to look this up be- before we get emails. Yeah, it's good It's good to know for sure. We didn't think about Nick Castellanos' first baseman on the rundown. We oh just, my God, he's never played a game at first base in the major leagues. Not a single inning, huh? Nope. Mm. Nope. Well, I guess my gut was right, but I was tr- trust not trusting my memory. Right, Especially if he played a couple innings at first base. Like, why? Of course I could have missed that. It's not weird. No. no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the other uh, Kyle Schwarber is like that for me too. It's like I think he could actually do it. We saw the Red Sox try it. They did it midseason. I think it's actually pretty difficult to just start playing over in a new mm-hmm. position midseason like that. And I would say I was more encouraged by discur- than discouraged by what we saw from Schwarber uh, in his first foray at first base. We are going to go, and I don't think Keith and I have a pod coming out together before Thanksgiving. So hopefully everybody has a safe and happy. I wasn't planning. I don't know about you. I wasn't, so uh, unless we get a, a note from the bosses saying, no, no, we have a, a podcast the day before Thanksgiving or something like that, uh, Keith and I are off for a few weeks, but the show goes on, of course, so continue checking out the Athletic Baseball Show each and every day as we have more episodes rolling out. And be sure to rate and review the podcast if you're listening on a platform that allows you to do that, or tell a friend. That's another great way to uh, share the love with us. We really appreciate anybody who's taking the time to do that on Twitter. He is at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. 